0: As you're finding your seats, you can open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12, Revelation chapter 12. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardbound one somewhere around you, and this morning's passage will be on the screen and also can be found on page 1034. Um, Pure joy uh, to see the way that you love one another. one of the greatest gifts that we have as the people of God is to be able to, uh, come together almost like a family reunion and strengthen one another. Uh, and and one of my favorite things about, uh, being a part of this church is, yeah, like that's not a show. That's real. There's affection here. That doesn't mean that we're, uh, perfect by any means, but there's a real depth of relationship and affection. Um, had an expression of that, uh, this weekend. So, um, each year, uh, I think it's growing with, uh, both creativity and popularity. Uh, we throw a, a Christmas party for the leaders, and uh, we did that at my house on Friday night, and uh, uh, it was just a blast. Um, the re- I draw your attention to that for a couple reasons. One is, I'm just convinced from the Lord that the leaders that serve inside of this church um, just are the choicest gift that we have on the planet. Um, so thankful for them. So um, if you benefit from being a part of a gospel community and someone bearing your burdens with you and someone trying to help us to grow, I mean, I would encourage you just to um, express your gratefulness for that. Um, That's... um, it's definitely not a paid position. Um, it comes with joys and comes with sorrows. Um, but it's, it's a real marked evidence of grace uh, that we get to experience that as a local church. So thanks for the way that you love one another. Um, and a few years back, uh, we threw a Christmas party for the leaders, and uh, the theme of that Christmas party was it was a murder mystery. So I don't know how many of you guys have ever done that. Uh, you guys ever been a part of a murder mystery? How many of you out there? Get some feedback. All right, yeah. So, um, this one was Christmas themed, and there was trouble at the North Pole. There was a little bit of jealousy that had arisen uh, between some elves, and it ended in murder, right? So, This this Christmas party in itself was a lot of fun because um, everybody came dressed up um, in character. They were in character the whole time. Uh, We saw some budding actors among our leaders. Uh, One of the highlights was Trenton Hoggard, who, uh, are you here, buddy? Yeah, Uh, he was dressed up as Dasher, who was, I think, involved, uh, a reindeer that was involved in... Uh, marathons, and he was uh, constantly running around um, in a circle. Um, and he's high-energy guy anyway, so that was a lot of fun. Um, but you saw like this interaction between people all night. So they were in character. They were having a good time. They were laughing. They were Santa and Santa's uh, helpers and elves and all these things. Um, but at a certain point in time, there was a murder, and then um, that's when the real fun started. People were uh, now becoming suspicious of one another. They were sharing time with one another. They were asking questions of one another. Um, they wanted to unmask who the murderer actually was. And so um, the person that did uh, part of the announcements this morning, that the murderer was Holly Huckabee. So I don't know if that says anything uh, about her. But um, that was a lot of fun. But you saw during those interactions people being suspicious and people... Um, asking real questions, trying to understand this mystery. What's going on? And um, that's a little bit of what we're going to see as we look at Revelation chapter 12 through Revelation chapter 14, is how do we unmask the reality of who our enemy is? Okay, so this may not uh, immediately seem like an Advent kind of sermon, um, but what we understand from the book of 1 John is that Jesus, and he the one of the primary reasons that he came into the world was so that he could destroy the works of the devil, so um, I know already like um, you 're going to get the price of your admission here this morning uh, we 're going to talk about some things honestly this the passages that we 're looking at has probably given rise to more speculation, more fear than maybe any other passages in the bible but I, I pray that at the end that you 're able to see that these passages are not in the Bible to instill confusion or fear, but they're there to reveal Jesus who is our champion, Jesus who is our defender, Jesus who loves us and gave himself up for us. And so this passage is going to be filled with images of dragons and beasts and the mark of the beast and a war and the wilderness. But above all these things, what we're going to see is a clear picture of who Jesus is, who came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. So, if you have your Bibles open to Revelation chapter 12 and you can stand, would you stand with me? We're going to read chapter 12. We're going to be, read verses 1 through 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She gave birth to a male child, one, is, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Verse 7. Now, war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, "Now the salvation." O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, let's pray. Father, I pray in these moments for real clarity. I pray that in these moments that the voice of the accuser would be silenced at the blood of Jesus. I pray that you would use this passage not to instill fear but to relieve fear. I pray that you would help us to see our champion, the one that came into the flesh as a little baby who triumphs over all of our enemies. I pray that that would stir our hearts to worship. And I pray that you would help us to live and to fight in the good of his victory on our behalf. Father, to do that, we just need your help. I need your help. Um, As someone that loves this church, I pray that you would help me to speak clearly. I pray that I would not add to or take away from your word, but that I would proclaim your word the way that you've meant it to be spoken. Um, I pray for my friends that you would help them to hear that you would give them ears to hear. I pray that Jesus would be glorified and magnified and his victory um, would be our victory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So these verses are intentionally vivid. Um, This is apocalyptic literature if you've been traveling with us through the book of Revelation. It's meant to be stark. It's meant to be colorful. It's meant to be powerful because it's meant to um, paint a picture of what reality is really like. Um, This also is subversive literature. So um, this speaks in word pictures. It's written to a group of people that are suffering, a group of people that are under persecution. Um, You could kind of liken it like this. If If you were a Christian and you were in Nazi Germany and you were trying to help Jewish brothers and sisters escape persecution, Um, And and there was this picture of, of, of wanting to get rid of Adolf Hitler. You wouldn't write letters to one another saying how you were going to take out Adolf Hitler. You would use pictures and symbols. That's a little bit of what's going on in Revelation chapter 12 through Revelation chapter 14. And there's this real tension as we look at the book of Revelation. There's this already not yet tension that goes on inside of this book. So, um... I'm sure when we look at these images, people want to know, is this something that's happened in the past? Is this something that's already gone on? Is this something that's going on right now? Or is this just something completely in the future? And the answer to all those questions is yes. Like, it's all of those things. It's something that's happened in the past. It's something that continues to happen in the present. And it's something that goes on in the future. Part of the reason that this... Um, these verses lose their power is if you make them something that's exclusively in the future, um, we rob ourselves of the real power that exists because this is a picture of Jesus ruling and reigning and triumphing over all of our enemies. Um, the, these chapters are in the Bible to say that Jesus has declared war and won war over everything that um, causes us fear and anxiety. And this, these verses are in the Bible to give us So this is something that's happened in the past. This is something that's happening in the present. And this is something that is also going to happen in the future. So if you were the recipient of this book and you were in the first century most assuredly, you would see the empire of Rome as the beast that's described inside of these verses, right? Throughout church history, people have identified with these verses, um, and it's given (laughs) it's given risen to like a lot of crazy interpretations over the years. Um, But this may be a particularly applicable for the last generation that's on earth. So we don't want to just exclusively make this some verses that are applicable to some future generations when they're real right now. So I know there's a real tension as we talk about um, Satan and the enemy and evil. Um, For some people, um, that's second nature to you, right? Um, You maybe over-realize this. You may see um, when your car doesn't start in the morning. You might see a demon, right? I mean, uh, for me, it's probably I just didn't change my spark plugs or do the maintenance that I was supposed to do. But some people, like, they see um, evil in everything. Um, And then there's other people that go to the other extreme. They don't see evil at all. So these verses are in the Bible to help us to understand um, who our enemy is, but also how Jesus defeats all of our enemies on our behalf, which brings me to my first point Unmasking our enemy, unmasking our enemy. So, Revelation chapter 12 reveals our enemy as a great red dragon. So, it's also in other parts of Revelation 12 and 13, he's referred to as Satan, which means adversary. He's referred to as the devil, which means slanderer. He is the accuser of the brethren. And listen, Really, honestly, apart from having a name, you have probably for sure this week, and if not this very morning, right, been the object of the slanderer and the accuser of the brethren, right? I mean, he's always working. He works in tandem with our own inner monologue that so often condemns us and keeps us from experiencing all that God has on our behalf. These chapters and these verses are here so that we realize that the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. Now, the Gospel of John describes him as a liar and a murderer from the beginning. The only thing that he does is speak lies. And the particular object of his hate that you see in chapters chapter 12, 1 through 6 is Jesus. And the church, who is described in these verses as a woman with child. In verse 3, it says that he has seven heads and ten horns, right? You've probably seen some creative artwork from time to time. But what does that really mean for him to have seven heads and ten horns? Uh, a commentator by the name of Vern Poitras says this, and I think this is helpful. It he says, The dragon has seven heads. Increasing his hideousness. In Daniel and in Revelation, multiple heads often symbolize multiple manifestations of a single kingdom. In the same way, Satan manifests his power through multiple channels and in multiple institution and events. Seven, which is the number of completeness, suggests that the dragon has extensive power and many manifestations. He aspires to blasphemously imitate the completeness of God. So what we have is an enemy that works in multiple ways across multiple streams. And the reason that he's described as a dragon is because that's the hideous way that he works. But inside of our own lives, oftentimes, I mean, he just, you know, he kind of is more like an angel of light. He's deceptive of the way that he works. He doesn't just come out and say, hey, this is what evil is. He makes evil alluring, and he uses all of those things to draw people in. Um, Like I said at the beginning, (laughs) we need to have fun with this, because if we don't, um, this could just be a heavy thing. But throughout church history, this has given rise to a lot of fear and speculation. Over time, when we talk about um, Satan and we talk about, we're going to look at chapter 13, we're talking about the beast and the mark of the beast. I mean, um, that has meant everything from um, a supercomputer that is somewhere secretly located in Europe with the acronym B E A S T. Um, people kind of freak out a little bit if your lunch tab ends up being $6.66. Like, have you guys ever done that, right? You're afraid, right? Um, but these verses in and of themselves are meant to give us hope and they're meant to give us peace. They're not meant to give us fear and rise to speculation. They're not just here to inform us about who our enemy is, but to inform us of who our Savior and our champion is. So I want to turn over to chapter 13. We're going to come back and look at the, the rest of chapter 12 in a few moments. I want to talk about... Uh, chapter 13 look at verses 1 through 4 it says and i saw a beast rising out of the sea with 10 horns and 7 heads and with 10 diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head and the beast that i saw was like a leopard its feet were like a bears and its mouth was like a lion's mouth and to it the dragon gave his power and his Throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Now let's look at verse eleven. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. Verse 16. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number of a man, and his number is six, six, six. Key the spooky music, right? <laughs> so, what we have to do when we look at passages like this is, um, what does this mean to the original recipients, right? What does this mean for us today? Does this mean that we're supposed to be afraid of getting the new iPhone that we might somehow become um, just like jars of mayonnaise that get scanned in the supermarket when we go through? Is that, is that what we're looking at? Is that what John is talking about? You're supposed to laugh at that one. All right. <laughs> Thank you. Courtesy laughs are always appreciated with me. All right. So what did this mean? This is um, a picture um, of for the first century, I mean, undoubtedly, like if you read this out loud, it didn't matter if you were 10 years old or 60 years old, you would have seen the beast as the empire of Rome. I mean, there was strict persecution that was going on against Christians. They were um, being constantly Viewed as the problems inside of Roman society, they were um, just the object of tremendous scorn. People could not buy or sell without the image of the beast, which was the Caesar, which was all over the whole empire, their money like literally said that Caesar is Lord, like Christians would say Jesus is Lord, their money would say Caesar is Lord. So this whole idea of talking about not being able to buy and sell more than being some futuristic thing is something that this first century church was going through. Um, and, And then when it talks about the number 666, look at verse 18. It says, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for the number of a man and his number is 666. So what's going on here is, remember, this is subversive literature, right? They can't just write against the empire of Rome. So there's this thing called gematria, which is basically the Hebrew alphabet has some numerical values that are associated with certain words. So the number 666, um, seven in the Bible is the number of completion. There were seven days of creation. Man was created on the sixth day. So 666 literally means, like, this is the fullness of man's rebellion, right? Um, And also, if you use that Hebrew um, number system called Gematria, like, if you calculate the number of 666, It actually means Nero. So if you know anything about Roman history, Nero was the emperor in the AD 60s. He was uh, supposedly committed suicide and was rumored to have raised from the dead. So that's when it's talking about the beast receiving this mortal wound. And what this is, is a picture of the empire that whether um, it was Nero or Domitian who was in control at this time, the empire just keeps coming. This beast, which literally is a picture of um, all forms of human self-autonomy, self-government, rebellion, self-morality, all of those things keep coming against the people of God, like The number 666 literally means mankind at the height of its rebellion. We're going to be the ones that make our own rules. We're going to follow our own selves. To thine own self be true, right? Every Disney princess movie that you've ever seen, right? The answer lies inside of you. And that goes in stark contrast to what God says inside of his kingdom. That there is a kingdom and a king and his name is Jesus. And that put the original recipients of this letter into direct opposition with the Roman government, right? So there was real persecution. Now, we looked a few weeks back. There's no, num- there's no reason to believe that this is like a literal tattoo or something that you have to get on your hand. Um, the, the people of God are sealed with the Holy Spirit, and that's an invisible mark. It doesn't have to be a literal mark. This is just a picture of how reality is. And I know that's a lot different than... Um, the Nikolai Carpathia movies that are out there, right? But this is a picture of God saying, in the midst of all of that, I'm going to keep you, and I'm going to reveal to you a picture of Jesus that is bigger and better. So I'm not saying that at some point that this couldn't be applied to some future leader or something like that, but for us as the people of God, what it means is that there is a world system right it doesn't matter which human government it is that's just like Romans 12 talks about that's trying to press us into its mold and it looks different in different societies in the East I mean it's a picture of power and military might and using money to dominate people in the West it's more seductive it's the gods of money and sex and power it's materialism, it's consumerism, right? It's multiple mediums, multiple streams that are vying for the attention and the heart of the people of God. So we do ourselves great harm if we just make this something that exists in the future. This is something that's present and active and waging war against Christians right now, right? Things that want to draw us in, things that want to cause us to put our hopes in things other than Jesus. But what this these verses reveal to us is that there is real hope that exists for the people of God. So so that's Revelation chapter 13. Now I want to go back and I want you to read that Revelation chapter 12 in light of Revelation chapter 13. So there are two pictures of human history that are revealed to us in Revelation chapter 12. One is the church in the midst of the wilderness, and the other is the church in the midst of war. Mm-hmm. And so for us as the people of God, what we have to understand is this is a little bit about like Aristotle's fish. Have you guys heard of that? Where how do you explain to a fish what water is, what it means to be wet? It's a little bit, that's, that's the, the world pressing in on us. It's almost like trying to explain to my daughter, like the world without cell phones, right? That, that I actually literally had to drive around with dimes and quarters inside of my ashtray so that I could use pay phones to call home and check in with mom. Like, that's a different world. and It's almost impossible for her to imagine. Well, for us as the people of God, it, it's, it's almost impossible for us, especially in our consumeristic, materialistic culture, to be able to see the effects of the dragon and the beast that's always waging war against us. The first image I want to look at is in in, uh, Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. It's the church in the wilderness. The church in the wilderness. Now, a couple weeks back, I had a chance to go on a hunting trip. Now, if you guys know me very well, um, that 's not in my skill set at all, and uh, I flew with a, a group of pastors and we went down to a place south of El Paso. Um, it was a ranch and it probably went about forty square miles about twenty eight thousand acres and so part of what we did was we were quail hunting and we would drive dune buggies kind of throughout all of these fields and um, when Scripture talks about a wilderness, it's not talking about a place in a forest with trees. It's more like a a desert or a desolate place. This is the kind of place that I was. And so I was the one that was driving the dune buggy, like looking, trying to just go as fast as I can and like flush out some quail. That was the only part that I was good at. Um, Incidentally, um, like I didn't know what a quail was, and so this is just going to be good for the soul. Some some of you... (laughs) Like, they just handed me a gun and told me to shoot, right? Um, And inadvertently, I killed Tweety Bird, like, on this trip. (laughs) So um, that's just a sidebar. That's uh, part of this. But so I was driving the dune buggy, letting the other people shoot. And I, I was acutely aware, everywhere that I was going, everywhere that I was driving... That I needed to keep my eye on the horizon and back where the camp was. Because, I mean, this is a, a lonely and a desolate place. I mean, it's pretty, easily, uh, it's pretty easy to get lost in a place like this. Um, very similarly, in like Revelation chapter 12, it talks about the church inside the wilderness. Where Satan wants to distract and to destroy and to divide and cause confusion. It it gives us a picture of Jesus that sustains us in the midst of the wilderness. There's a picture of the church fleeing to the wilderness so that it would be nourished and taken care of by God. The wilderness is where a church or a people or individuals feel like there are more questions than there are answers. The wilderness is the place that you feel exposed. The wilderness is the place where you feel um, your acute need. And really, these verses and these chapters are here to help us to understand why the world is the way that it is. Why is there evil and suffering? Why? are there apparent seasons of unfruitfulness inside of local churches? This is a picture of the church inside the wilderness. It says in verse 6 that he takes his people into the wilderness so that he can nourish them and feed them. We go to the wilderness and we go through seasons like that, both, both personally and corporately, So that we realize that Jesus is real spiritual food, right? That he really is the bread of life, that he can sustain us, that he really is living water that he will provide for us, that he will nourish us, that the, the things that we think that can be provided for us inside the world actually are only met inside of Jesus. So we go into the wilderness to see that all of those other things don't really matter, that the only thing that we're made for and the only thing that can really satisfy us is Jesus himself. So that he's real spiritual food, that he is the bread of life, that he is real spiritual drink, And also we find out in the wilderness that Jesus is our protector, that he watches over us, that he keeps us, that he sustains us. Jesus nourishes us by being our protector. We get to experience the truth of Psalm 121. We lift up our eyes to the hills. Where does our help come from? Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved need to hear that if you are in the wilderness this morning. He will watch over you. He will keep you. He will protect you. And no one will snatch you out of his hand. He will watch over you. He will keep you. He will protect you. And this has been my experience, quite honestly, in wilderness seasons. When you come out on the other side of the wilderness, you'll love him more. Because his love in those moments become real. It's not some theoretical experience, but he meets you at your point of need. He meets you inside the wilderness to let you know that his steadfast love is better than life. So if you are in the midst of a confusing season this morning, if you are in the wilderness, Revelation chapter 12 is in the Bible to say Jesus is your provision, Jesus is your protector, Jesus is watching over you, and he is keeping you. No matter if all of hell is arrayed against you, he will keep you. That's the point of Revelation chapter 12. I know it took a lot of work to get there, but Jesus sustains us in the wilderness. Jesus sustains us when we have more questions than answers. Jesus is our food. Jesus is our water. And the second image in chapter 12, verses 7 through 12, is the church at war, right? That's not something we think about a lot, but The whole book of Revelation is about that the church is engaged in this spiritual battle. And as a church, we are committed to making disciples, to following Jesus, to pushing back darkness. So that makes us like square in the middle of a spiritual war. Let's look at verses 7 through 12. I want you to live in the good of this um, and us to live in the good of this as a church. Now, war... Arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Hear this victory cry. And I heard with a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before Our God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. So the church is in the midst of a real war. It is a war that Jesus has already fought and won on our behalf, but it also is a war um, that we must live in the good of. We must flee to him for refuge and safety. We must allow him to be our champion and our defender. Everyone in this room knows what it's like to be the object of the accusing voice of the enemy. You know you are experiencing accusation when you want to quit, when you want to throw in the towel. The most insidious thing the enemy does is mimic the voice of God. It makes you think, who are you? Why are you trying to do the things that you're doing? You should just give up, right? But these verses are in the Bible to give us real hope. You're experiencing the voice of the enemy when you're experiencing hopelessness and despair. I love what verse 10 says. The accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. Now listen, this happened definitively at the cross of Jesus Christ where he was suspended Between heaven and hell. To destroy the accusing voice of the enemy. He took all of the penalty for our sins. He took all of the condemnation. All of the guilt. All of the shame. He was crucified naked before the world. So that you would be clothed inside of your shame. Like that's the good news of the gospel. So that the accusing voice of the enemy is thrown down. Now this is is how you learn to fight. Because you don't overcome the accusing voice of the enemy by your own spiritual performance. You don't respond to the accuser of the brethren because you had a quiet time. right? You don't respond to the accuser of the brethren because you did a good deed. You respond... To the accuser of the brethren, not by looking inward at anything that you have, but by looking outward and upward to see Jesus high and lifted up on your behalf. That's how you fight the enemy. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb through his sacrifice and by the word of their testimony. So there's an actual a real battle that has to take place because we're always listening to some kind of voice. This chapters in the Bible to help us to speak back and to talk back and to overcome the accuser of the brethren by the word of our testimony. We must speak and declare who Jesus is on our behalf. Not only do we need to do that because we're radically individualistic in the United States of America. Not only do we do that privately, but this is why we come together. This is why we gather in gospel communities. It's the word of our testimony, right? That you know that you're in the same battle with everyone in this room. Everyone in this room is doing battle against the accuser of the brethren, but he has been thrown down. Something I do personally when I'm battling this, which I do quite often. You have to ask yourselves, where is Jesus in this picture? Right? Scripture describes him as our advocate. He is pleading for us he is a way of escape for us right and as I think about him living to intercede for us and praying for us like it begins to free me and I can recognize the voice of the accuser sometimes I have to have people remind me of what's true right we need one another to say listen the voice that you're listening to is not the voice of truth you need to listen to the voice that cried out on the cross it is finished on your behalf So the church is at war, but it's a war that's already been won. The cross is the point of victory. I'm not going to get into it, but chapter 14, after experiencing this kind of redemption against the beast and all the enemies, it says that the people of God, the redeemed, sang a new song. There's new songs for new mercies, right? So some of you here, it, it needs to be a point in time where you begin to sing out and you begin to declare God's victory on your behalf, where the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down, where you don't allow him to have authority over you anymore, but you declare God's victory on your behalf. I want to close with this quote because it's been helpful. It comes from uh, a hymn in the 19th century. It's by a man named Samuel Grandy. It says, Well may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. Everybody knows that roar. I know them all and thousands more, but Jehovah knoweth none. That's the miracle of the incarnation and the gospel that Jesus took it all, he paid it all, he conquered over all of our enemies, so that it says in the, in the Old Testament that he chooses to remember our sins no more. It's not as if he forgets them, but he chooses not to bring those to our account. Those have been transferred to Jesus. So the only way to silence the voice of the accuser is to realize what Jesus has done. And that's why we're here. That's why we sing. That's why the incarnation and Christmas matters. That's why we're talking about this this morning. Um, Let's pray and we'll continue to worship. Jesus, thank you for your victory on our behalf. I pray that in some small way you would use these verses to remove fear instead of instilling fear that you're our provision, our protector, our defender. You watch over us and you keep us. I pray right now for those that are familiar with the roar of the enemy. I pray that right now, your affirmation of them, your Rejoicing over them with loud singing would ring louder in their ears than their sins. I come against the voice that would say, this doesn't apply to you, this doesn't apply to your situation. I pray that you help us to know that you dealt with everything that we are afraid of, everything that can bring accusation against us. And all we get to receive is your mercy and your vision, and your kindness. Father, I pray that as we continue to worship you in song and we celebrate your victory through communion, that you would nourish us, that you would feed us once again.